0: We will be in Genesis 25 to give you a quick kind of here's what's happening Um, in Genesis 25 we meet what I would call the first really fleshed out secular man and when I use the term secular I mean that the old Latin for secular is now he's a now man. His name is Esau. We've seen glimpses of secular men, Nimrod and Cain and others. But when we look at Esau, we actually get his story. And so, if you don't know Esau and his story, let me quickly kind of fill you in so we can hit our text. His mom, Rebecca, and his dad, Isaac, got married for 20 years, they could not have kids. So, they began to pray. Rebecca gets pregnant with her first child, she thinks. And then she begins to notice something's wrong in her womb. And so she prays like, God, what's happening in my womb? Like something weird is happening here. And God says, there are two nations in your womb. You have twins. And then there's this prophecy given about these two kids. And it's one will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. You have siblings in here? Did you like it when your younger brother, younger sister beat you at something? Was that like, oh, I'm just so thankful for them. God bless them. No way, you want to win at everything, right? You wanted to, you're the older child. They should, you should not lose at anything, all right? So you, right away, God's saying, there's gonna be issues. These boys are gonna have issues. So her womb has turned into like a UFC octagon, And when her kids are kicking, they're kicking each other. Like they're fighting each other. So pregnancy gets to the end. She's ready to give birth. And as she's giving birth, the the kids are actually fighting over who gets out first. Right? And mom's just like, get out. I don't care. Just get out of me. I'm tired of this. So they're, they're wrestling around. They're fighting. And all of a sudden, the first one comes out. And the New Living Translation says this, that when he was born... He was red all over, and he was hairy like a fur coat. So Rebecca's like, what in the world? Did I give birth to a grizzly bear? What is that thing, right? Like, oh, my goodness, a red, hairy garment came out of me, right? And the next kid is, like, holding on to his ankle, his heel, as the first hairy kid is born. I think, actually, his hands were stuck in his leg hair, but doesn't say that exactly, but I think that's what happened. So he comes out too, right? And both of them get a name based on that. So the first one, the red hairy one, is called Tickle Me Esau. No, not very good. I wasn't even saying it because the first service is just like... I'm like, that's not funny. I should note that. So his name is Esau, and it means hairy. And then Jacob, it's very close to... um. Uh, heel or heel snatcher. So that's how they get their names. So you have these two very, very kind of different guys. One guy is super hairy, right? He's the guy that takes off his shirt and is ready to jump in the pool. And you're like, bro, take off your sweater first. He's like, I already did. <laughs> oh, all right. all right. And then it says of Jacob that he was smooth. His skin was smooth. like He had no hair. So they're like just very, very divergent from the time that they're born and they grow up that way. So Esau, he's an outdoorsman. He goes hunting. He goes fishing. He 4 buys in the mud. He goes out and just burns random stuff in the woods like old Volkswagens. Breaks my heart, right? He thinks NASCAR is actually a sport. Sorry about that if you love NASCAR. They only turn one direction. That's my issue with it. So he thinks NASCAR's, he goes out and he eats hamburger helper out of a giant aluminum pot with a wooden spoon. He's just that dude. You're like, whoa. All right. So you've got Esau over here, just wild man. And then it says this of Jacob. He's a smooth man that loved the tents. So Jacob's the opposite. He's a guy that goes shopping at the mall, talking to the ladies. Hey, what's up ladies? He's a guy that wears those V-neck shirts that are way too v necked You're like, bro, I don't want to see that on you. Come on, man. Get a button on that thing. He's that guy, right? He, he likes the finer things of life caviar and gray poupon and Perrier, right? So you have these just unbelievably different men that start to grow up together. And it's really Ted Nugent moves into Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> so you just know like this is going to be, pro- this, this is not going to end well. However, this is is not, there is going to be war here. So that's where we pick up our story. Chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, he's in the kitchen making some stew. Esau came in from the field. Wild Harry comes in. And he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Like he doesn't even know the name of it, right? You kind of get like he's this rough dude. Give me some of that red stuff. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so Harry's out in the field, comes in, he's just exhausted. Jacob is inside, he's cooking Wolfgang Puck's latest ah pistew soup. And Harry's just like, oh, dude, that looks so good. Give me some of that red stuff, right? I've been eating mac and cheese for the last week. That looks so good. Can I have some of that? And Jacob, who's probably been waiting for this moment for a long time, seizes it okay, sure. Sell me your birthright. And he does. Now a birthright, if you don't know, it was family heritage. It was inheritance. It was, you were the leader of your tribe, of that clan. It was the most important thing that could be bestowed upon a son. So he has this number one thing and he could care less about it. Hebrews 12 says he's a profane man. Profane means he does not care about things that actually matter. So Esau sells out his number one thing for a bowl of pea soup. I'm amazed as I counsel people how cheaply they will sell out what's really important. Their morals, their marriage, their heritage, their family, whatever it is. For bean soup. So Esau just gets rid of it. And the reason why I'm hungry now. Now remember this about their family. Abraham was an extremely rich dude. Their grandfather, Abraham gave all of his stuff to their dad, Isaac. Isaac's taken the inheritance of Abraham and expanded it. He's even richer. So these guys are extremely wealthy. They're not It wasn't like there wasn't food inside of their home. Lentils were actually from Egypt. It was imported food. They had imported food. So this is, they're wealthy. It was Esau wanted food now. I'm exhausted. I'm starving to death. I need it now. I'm not going to wait and I don't want to work for it. I want it now. And he sold out. He's secular. He's a now person. And the way that his life had been, it had shaped him around, I want things now, I don't wanna wait for him. It's impatience, ultimately. So Carl Jung said this, and he said that hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. That's what you have with Esau. So Esau takes his most precious, important thing in life, and he gives it away because he's impatient. He's in a hurry. And he allows his belly to be his God. Isn't America a secular nation now? Now, we're the now nation, right? We're all in a hurry. It's gotta happen now. We can't wait for anything. So we drive at 65 miles per hour. Who actually drives at 65 miles per hour? Right? It's not quite fast enough. A hundred years ago, they went five miles per hour. And yet 65 miles, ah, you know, I can do 70. Cops won't pull me over if I'm doing 74, right? The magic 10 mile an hour rule. Here's what you need to know about speeding. Speeding is the number one cause of all traffic accidents and the number one cause of all fatalities. It's speeding, right? So kids, if you're 16, 17, speed kills. Be careful. Parents, if you have a 16, 17 year old, There's an app that will tell you how fast your kids go. And it's awesome. Google it. You'll be surprised at what your little angel does. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So we have this just speed now, our whole culture, right? We don't just have shampoo. It's shampoo plus conditioner because it takes way too long. That extra minute. Are you kidding me? Oh, drive throughs I've been to 30 countries. I've never seen a drive through in any other country but America. It's an American invention. Why? Because we're a secular, now, hurry civilization. I've got to have my food. I've got to have it now, right? drive throughs allow the American family to eat dinner in their SUVs just like God intended us to, <laughs> right? I've got to have it now. That's the mentality. It's absolutely in us and through us. And then it gets much more dangerous. Sex. Why should I wait? I want it now. Drugs. If you really start to peel back why drugs are so attractive, it's because of the secular nature of a drug, right? Science has shown that if you actually work a job, achieve something like jobs are supposed to, that you have this rush that happens in your brain that's very similar to what a drug does. But you got to actually work eight hours or a week to get it. Or working out. They found that working out. If you exercise, your brain releases these pleasure hormones and chemicals that make you feel good. But you got to work out, right? People with pain, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual, you got to talk and counsel and work through some stuff and forgive. And that can be hard when a drug is secular and now and easy, right? If you got pain, then maybe I'm going to have to change my life or maybe I have to not eat some food or maybe I have to do something different. I don't want to do that. If I have a pain, I want a pill. So we become secular in things that really, really matter. But if you look at the Bible, it really says this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not to be secular. Over in the Bible says this, that we are to be those that wait on the Lord. Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I'm God. Because when you do that, here's what happens to you. You realize, you know what? I'm not in control of much, and God is. And I need to stop shouldering the burdens of the world and allow God to be God. So I need to be still and be reminded that he's in control. Or Psalm twenty seven fourteen, Twice it says there, wait for the Lord, right? Do good, wait for the Lord. Lamentations 3, 25, 26 wait for the Lord, wait for his salvation, wait for the Lord. Or Isaiah 40, 31, classic, right? Those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I can go on and on and on. There is supposed to be a way that the believer is shaped and it's shaped by us waiting on God. And it's healthy, Science has proved it. Who here has heard of the marshmallow test? Well, you're going to hear about it today then. So it was a test done a number of years ago. They took five-year-olds, they put them in a room. It was full of glass windows, one-way glass. They had a table, and they put one marshmallow in the middle of the table, and they told that five-year-old, listen, if you will wait for 15 minutes, we will give you two marshmallows to eat. And then they watched what happened. And some of the kids just grabbed it and ate it. I'm not even caring. I'm going to eat this thing right now. Other kids where they like hid underneath the table, they sang, they like moved the marshmallow as far away as possible. They wouldn't look at it. Like, it's really funny what they did. Here's what they did. 10 years later, they went and looked at the kids that could wait 15 minutes versus those that could not wait 15 minutes. Secular versus waiters. And they found the ones that could wait did better in school weren't doing bad behaviors. It was unbelievable. Just that simple act of waiting, what it transferred to their life and how they lived. My son Elijah, who's nine, I've told him about that test. One day I'll try to trick him to do a similar test. Haven't been able to figure out what to do now. But he says this, you know what, Dad? There should be an iPhone test for parents. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, You should put an iPhone on a table and tell that parent, you can't look at it for 15 minutes and then just start buzzing it. You know, (laughs) see if they can actually do it. (laughs) I'm like, that's brilliant. Actually, (laughs) I don't think parents could like, I got (laughs) to look. Waiting works, right? It reminds you God's in control and I'm stepping into his world in his way. All right. So with that in mind, I'm going to jump out of this story to another story about two siblings and a meal, because there I think Jesus gives us how to actually combat this secular now attitude that's destructive and that's really pervasive in our world. So if you would skip forward to Luke chapter 10, where again we see two siblings and a meal and a problem, all right? So Luke chapter 10, I'll read it for you. It's verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. It's Bethany. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted be taken away from her. Siblings and a meal and a problem. But here we see the solution. It's interesting to me that both these stories are geared around a meal, just a mundane thing. How many meals do you eat a day? Three meals. The reason I think they're around meals is because we are shaped not by the big events of life, but the mundane things and how we deal with them every single day. So I tell my kids they are in soccer for the most part, I tell them, you will play like you practice. It's not Saturday one hour that determines if you're a good player or not or how you're gonna play. It's what you did on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday that determines how you're gonna play on Saturday. The mundane meals of life are the practice so that when we play the big game, it works. So I wanna notice What Martha is. To me, I read this story, and Martha to me is a great American. It's her house, right? She's in a hard civilization at that time for women to do anything, and she owns her own house. Her brother and sister actually live with her in her house, right? She is a take charge, get it done, CEO lady. She's on it. But is she happy? Well, let's look at her. Let's look at the evaluation. Number one, Verse 40 says this, Martha was distracted with much serving. Her mind is all distracted. She's got too much to do. She's overwhelmed by it, right? I'm just overwhelmed. There's too much for me to do today. There's too much here. So then she demands that Jesus make her sister volunteer to bail her out. Isn't that fascinating? I love that. Jesus, get my sister to bail me out of my problems. Her mind's all distracted. Number two, she's mad. Her relationships are totally broken. She looks at Jesus and she says this, verse 40, you don't care. Do you not care? Don't you see what's happening to me? Jesus, you don't care about this. See see what my sister's doing? She looks at Mary, her sister, and she's just mad. She's just sitting there right now. Martha type personalities always get mad when people aren't doing something, right? Right? You, what's wrong with you? Why are you just sitting there? Be productive. What's wrong with your legs? Get up and do something, right? If you don't get up, something's going to be wrong with your legs. Come on. That's the Martha mentality. Just, you, you need to be producing right now. So she's just, ugh. Jesus, she doesn't think he cares. Mad at her sister. What's interesting to me is this. Lazarus, who's her brother, is missing. Jesus is over for dinner And Lazarus is not there. Why isn't he there? John 11 tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus. They were bros. He's not at this meal. Do you know why? Here's my guess. He heard Jesus is coming to Martha's house. My sister. Oh no, that is drama. I am not going there. I know what that's going to look like. I've got to go um, reshoe my camel. That's what I'm going to be doing. Now I can't make it right? He already knows like what's going to happen in that home. So he's not even, he wants no part of that. Not going there. That's going to be a stressed out, miserable situation. She's manic. Jesus puts it like this. Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You're you're being torn to pieces by this thing. That's literally the, the word there. This meal that you're trying to fix, it's tearing you to pieces. You're that kind of person that says, man, I can't stop. I'm in too deep. I have no choice. Oh no and I need somebody else to bail me out. You know anyone like that? I can be like that. I don't have a choice, man. This is my plate. It's on there. I got to deal with this. And her expectation is this. Next week will be different. Okay, I got all these things to do this week, but I'll get through them, and then next week I'll slow down. You ever say that to yourself? Has that ever worked for you? No, because next week never comes. We'll be overwhelmed and distracted and anxious just as much next week as we are today. Instead of enjoying the day as a gift from Jesus, she keeps on thinking, I'm gonna to get to this destination. And when I get to the destination, things will be awesome. But the destination never comes. And then she's troubled. She's troubled. She's upset at Mary. She's demanding of Jesus. She's, she's blame shifting If Mary would just serve some more, if Jesus would just command her to do that, everything would be fine, right? She's blame shifting. It's not me. It's Jesus not caring. And it's Mary not helping me. It's not me. The truth is this. She had invited Jesus into her home. The truth is this. Mary had helped her. Verse 40 says she had left off serving. Mary had done a bunch, served a bunch, helped a bunch. And then she said, it's good. The meal's good, I'm done. And she sat down to be with Jesus. It's good enough. So I think what, if you look deeply, the problem with Martha is one of two things. The problem of a secular mindset is one of two things. Number one, it's this. It's overvaluing yourself. It's all up to me. If I don't do this, it's not gonna work. The meal will never go off. You're shoaling the world's problems. It's all on me. And then it just drives you into the ground. That's why waiting is such an important discipline because it's reminding you, no, I don't spin the world. No, I don't make the sun come up. No, I don't control the weather. No, I don't control a lot of things. Either I'm going to stress out about that or I'm going to be fine with it. So it's overvaluing yourself. You become your own God. Or number two, undervaluing yourself. So I think Martha was a person that she got her self-worth from what she accomplished. She got her self-worth from doing things and getting approval. And so her world has been shaped around, I've always got approval. I've always been an accomplisher. I've always been able to get stuff done. So I think underlying her problem in this meal was this. She wanted this meal to be the best one Bethany, that city she lived in, had ever seen. She wanted people to talk about, look how great this was. Man, I remember the time Jesus came to your house. That was the best party ever. That's what she wanted to hear. And because that wasn't going off the way that she thought it should, oh, she starts to lose it. Because she knows I'm not gonna get the approval I want. I'm not gonna get the... the Accolades that I think are necessary. So now she's just running around. She's running around trying to make everybody happy, eight course meal, or d'oeuvres. She's filling up wine glasses or grape juice glasses, whatever you prefer to think. She's just doing this. She's boiling a pot. It's overflowing. She's telling people to take off their shoes. She's now got a polite smile on her face that looks like she wants to bite somebody because her functional savior is how much I accomplish. What a great party I throw. People telling me, oh, that was the best party ever. And what's the solution? Jesus says, here's one thing. Here's one thing that you should be doing. And it's verse 41. You are anxious and troubled about many things. You ever felt that way? Man, I have. But one thing is necessary. You want to break this anxious, troubled, manic life? There's one thing that's necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. The solution is this. I like one things. The solution is this. Mary or Martha, the problem is not your sister. And the problem is not your circumstances. The problem is you. It's where you are finding your fulfillment and where you are finding your salvation and you're finding them in what you do instead of who you are. And until you get that figured out, you're gonna be driven manic and anxious and troubled because there's always gonna be more to do. So if you don't figure out your true savior, if you don't figure out your true north, man, you're gonna go back and forth and be driven into the ground. And good things, it's good to serve, it's good to have people over to your house. It's good to be a hospital. Everything she's doing is good. But she'd taken a good thing and she'd elevated way up too high to become her savior. If this is a great party, I'm saved. I'm a good person. I'm a success. It became her functional savior. And so Jesus says, you got to back off that. And the only way you can back off that is by being reminded of what your true north is of being reminded of what I am. And it happens in so many areas. Fatherhood can do it to me. I want to prove I'm a great dad. So fatherhood, which is a really good thing, can become my functional savior where I get my identity from being, oh, you're such a great dad. Oh, okay, happy. What about when I'm not a great dad? And there's many times I'm not. Then I've lost it. And I get troubled and anxious and distracted and angry, just like her. So She, Martha, is is being given the absolute solution to a secular lifestyle that drives us crazy, right? And it's one thing. And the one thing is this. You have to get your true north before you can ever know how to live out this life. And that true north is sitting at Jesus' feet. So how's that work? It's interesting to me, when Luke wrote this gospel, there were no chapters. So right when Jesus finishes, here's the one thing necessary. The very next phrase is, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he goes through, okay, here's how you pray. And pray, hey, heavenly father. And then it ends, Jesus, this whole section ends with Jesus saying this, it's verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You gotta to your father, who's in control of the world. And you gotta trust your heavenly father will give you what you need, especially his spirit. And that spirit produces this fruit in you of love and joy and peace and long suffering and meekness and temperance. And when you have these fruits in your life, you live the good life. That's your true north. It's spend time with me. So let me suggest this. I'll give you one spiritual and a couple of practical ways to beat back a secular mindset. Number one is this right here. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, take some time, Read verses 38 through chapter 11, 11, verse 13 and pray. Pray, Jesus, I want to have my true north. Jesus, today, help me not to make a good thing into you. Help me to enjoy the gifts you have given me today. Help me to know what I can control and what I cannot control. Help me to know what to say no to to this day. Because I found this, if I have too much serving in my life, it's not because God gave me more. It's because I took on more because I'm trying to impress people. That if I really take on what Jesus has for me, it's a balanced, beautiful, right life. But when I start trying to impress people with, look how much I do, look at the party I'm throwing, man, it overwhelms me and crushes me. So help me to get that true north today so that when I walk out this day, it's beautiful. And I have that shalom that only comes from you a piece about my life. So try that, try it this whole week. And tell me what you think. Tell me if your life doesn't seem more oriented correctly, more structured, more right, less secular, more spiritual. All right, number one. And then here's a couple of practical things. I think we have to, as a culture, have a almost Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday discipline that pushes back against impatience. So I'm gonna give you some, I've given these before. Try this just for this week and then keep the ones that help. Try these, driving. I don't think there's any area of the American life that doesn't cause us to be impatient more than driving. It's just like, man, I'm going to drive. I'm going to get ahead of people. I'm going to, you know, choose this. For one week, do this. Don't change lanes when you drive. Don't chuckle. Try it. So when you're going up, up and down 6th Street or 7th Street, stay in the same lane you started in. When you're going out 199, stay in the same lane you started in. When you're on Interstate 5, going over to Medford, stay in the same lane. You're saying, that's impossible. Learn from me. Here's how I've learned to drive slow. I bought a Volkswagen bus. (laughs) There's no choice then. (laughs) People look at me and pass me all day long. Try it. It's It's an incredible discipline. And if we're honest, we move at speeds that 99.99% of human history could not imagine. And yet they're not fast enough because it never will be. So try that, number one. Number two, when you go to an appointment, instead of getting there right at the time, leave five minutes earlier than you normally would. Arrive, sit, think, strike up a conversation with somebody, find out that, you know what, it's not about just getting this appointment done, it's actually about being human, and being in a relationship and talking with people. And if I give myself a little bit marg- a, a little bit more margin, all those things start to happen. And then it's not just about an appointment, it's about people, which ultimately is the most important. Then thirdly, really, really watch the words we use. Our words are shaping us, right? I'm starving. Is anybody in America truly starving? No, my kid's going to me. I'm starving yet. That means I have not eaten food in one hour and 45 minutes, right? You're not starving, bud. You're American starving, but you're not starving. But we use these terms that are very like, ah, now, ah. And we almost have to stop ourselves from using those. I, I use this and I stopped. When someone says, hey, man, I want to talk to you. You got a minute. Okay, I got one minute. Talk. That's kind of rude. I've stopped using that. It's really saying, I don't have time for you, but since you've inter, you know, kind of interrupted me, I'm gonna give you then one minute. Keep it really quick and short. It's actually rude. It's a secular kind of way. Jesus didn't do that. You watch Jesus constantly being interrupted throughout life and guess what? He was fine with it because he knew these interruptions are from my father and he won't give me more than I can handle. So I'm gonna walk them out well. Try this week if you can, number four, to either ride your bike or walk somewhere that you normally drive. So maybe to work if you could make it. I take walks all the time. And I walk with this idea. I don't take anything with me. I used to take like a journal and stuff. To like, But it was like, I'm doing something then. I'm walking to be human and to listen to God. They speak to me. And I pray and I talk and I think. And it's really, really healthy. It gets me back to true north, what actually matters. It gets me back to that. And the last one is this, and this is what I just started doing. It's when I go to the aisles now at Costco or wherever, instead of trying to find the fastest aisle, I now try to find the slowest aisle. And here's why. I pick what I think is going to be the, the fastest aisle and what happens? Price check on aisle 13. Oh, man, right? The lady's too chatty. I'm like, stop talking and just check out the stuff. Like it's amazing. Like in one minute, I go from being pretty nice to being just a horrible human. Because I'm like, oh, this wasn't the fastest. Then I'm looking around, like, should I stop? Should I go over there? All for what? Two minutes? I mean, all this stress and anxiety and trouble over two minutes? It's insane to me. I'm insane. I know that now. So now you know what I do? I try to pick the slowest lane. And here's what's happening. It's actually often faster than the one I would have gone into. Do stuff like that. What you're doing is you're doing that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday thing so that when the birthright comes up, you go, no, your soup ain't worth my birthright. You're able to say no to the important things and yes to the one essential thing, which is Jesus. Because Jesus says this, it's his last or it's his, it's his message of what happens at the last day. He says, there's a bunch of people that come to him. And they say this to Jesus. They say, look at all this stuff we've done for you. We did it, man. We prophesied. We we did all this stuff for you. And Jesus looks at those people and what does he say? Depart from me. I don't know you. You didn't sit at my feet. You didn't talk to me. I don't know who you are. You did a bunch of stuff, but I don't know who you are. Because we're supposed to be being much more like Mary. And when you're much more like Mary, you find your life is very Mary. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you do. Life becomes the way it's actually designed to become with the right kind of rhythm, with a true north where you're supposed to go. This week, one homework assignment. Take time in your morning, orient yourself to true north. And watch how that directs you throughout the rest of the day. Watch how it lets you be free from anxiety and from trouble and distraction and all the secular stuff of our world. And watch it enable you to say, this is what's most important. And I'll never give this up for pea soup. I'll never give it up for lentils because this is what's most important, okay? And here's what we do every single week outside. We have baptism. And baptism is, you know, it's a way of, and and I've used this a long time, putting on the jersey. So when we get saved, we become part of Christ's body. But that's an internal decision that we make. And no one outside kind of knows that. I don't even think our enemy knows that. But when we get baptized, here's what happens. We put on the jersey and we get in the game. And it's the best game you'll ever be in the game of life, the game of, of uh, kingdom, the game of, of the way that we are designed to be. So if you have not been baptized and you want to be baptized, we offer this every single Sunday. No pressure. We believe that God's Spirit speaks to you and tells you when that should happen. And that's not my job to do. My job is to tell you here's what's available and then you respond. So if you feel like today, you know what? I want to put on the jersey. I want to make sure that I am identified as part of the body of Christ. I believed in Jesus, and I'm saved. Now it's time to declare my salvation to everybody else. Will you come up here and be baptized? So after I pray and dismiss the congregation, you're welcome to come up. We'll baptize you. You'll put on the jersey and get in, if you would, to the game. You'll be part of this incredible kingdom, valuable, usable. So, Jesus, forgive me for being anxious and troubled. Maybe this message is just for me. I can identify more with Martha than Mary. I often fill my plate with much serving and very little sitting. Forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. May we never forget the one necessary thing. May we wake with Scripture, with prayer with true north, with you giving us the gift of your spirit, which produces in us love and joy and peace, a shalom. Help us, Lord, this week. Help us to treat each day as a gift from you, enjoying the good things, going through the hard things, knowing that they strengthen us. And most importantly, Trusting you, that you are in control, not us. So may we be a people who have their strength renewed because we've waited on you. Who have vision like eagles. Who are not weary and fainting of life because we trust in you and we have spent time with you. So go before us, enable us to do this and help us to be shining lights of life to friends, family, coworkers, and community. We pray this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.